0: Welcome back, everybody. I'm Greg McEwen. This is part two of a conversation with a CEO, an entrepreneur, and a brilliant mind, Brian Murphy. He's not just the founder and CEO of Reliquest, he's also someone who can dissect the entrepreneurial journey with us, with you. In part one of our conversation, we started literally at the very beginning of his life, his first memory, chasing his brothers and getting his hand trapped in the door, and followed that piece by piece in the great race of his life. And we had a deep dive on a single principle, and that is this, to do the simple things savagely well. What a great one-liner and a great addition our own toolkit as part of the Greg McEwan podcast community. And we also went deep onto a specific practice that he learned in a sales class in his undergraduate degree, uh, which was feel, felt, found. Of course, you can go back to listen to the whole episode if you haven't caught up on that yet. Where we ended was before the great journey of is current entrepreneurial venture the thing he is best known for in business and that's where we're going to begin the conversation Brian, welcome back to the podcast. Great to be with you, Greg. Thanks very much. Help us to go on that journey. From that class, you then went and actually were an accountant at PwC. And at some point along the journey, you shifted from being an accountant to formally being an entrepreneur. How did that take place? So I went, I signed up to be
1: an auditor at PwC and was recruited by their management consulting side, the technology side of PwC. And they taught me a bunch of programming languages and ultimately sold that business to IBM. And so I worked for financial services, kind of compliance, Sarbanes-Oxley compliance consulting, and just had this idea that I wanted to do something bigger. The group that I work with were were two owners. I was the sole operator in Central Florida. They were up in North Florida and I kept bringing them some ideas on how we could go bigger and mm. expand and hire differently. And And I appreciate they were honest with me at the time. One wanted to go into politics and and he did. And the other mm. one said, this looks like a lot of work and I'm, I'm pretty happy with where we are today. And mm-hmm. so I tell people, had I worked for Reliquest, I never would have started ReliaQuest. But that was the jumping off point where I told my wife, um, Hey, I think, you know, at the time our daughter was two and our son wasn't born yet. And I told my wife, I, I think I can make a go of this in a different field. Instead of doing the Sarbanes-Oxley kind of financial consulting, let's go over to the IT consulting side. And that was in 2007. And, uh, For $150, you too can register a company on (laughs) sundiz.org in the state of Florida. And uh, I called myself CEO, and that was the beginning.
0: There's a story that I'd come across that you wrote this out on the back of a napkin at an alumni event. Is that true? Is that... Yeah. I'd had this
1: conversation in Jacksonville with the two owners of the firm, and then I was driving from Jacksonville to Tallahassee and to dedicate we'd done a big capital raise for a student organization there and we're at mm. a dedication. And, you know, I just really started to form some ideas. And, uh, my brother-in-law was there, my older brother was there, just a bunch of friends. And we just, I just started talking out loud and with my older brother and a friend of his and my brother-in-law and started taking notes on napkins at, you know, uh, midnight, uh, at, in a, in a bar there. And that, that was really, I went home from there with a bunch of napkins on Sunday and sat Renee down, and uh, you know she said, "Well, let's uh, let's let's give it a whirl." So, mm.
0: so it's a literal napkin story,
1: not yeah. not you know. I, I wish I still had the napkins, but
0: yes, that would be really. The ideas must not have been great because I didn't keep them. So, it was, <laughs> <laughs> but you kept them in a different way. But that's an important conversation that you had with your wife too. I mean, it takes courage for you, and we emphasize that. I think. Uh, in the entrepreneurial stories, but that's courage for her too. That's a, you know, she's, she's depending on you. She, you both have a, a young daughter and it's uh it's a risky move, but she believes in you and she believed in it. And that's not nothing
1: you agree. She, she had way more courage than I did. I mean, she had to have faith of, cause it wasn't much of a plan, Greg. It wasn't <laughs> no. like, it wasn't <laughs> much, right. I mean, it's a couple of soggy napkins and, <laughs> and that, you know, and then a year in we go through the greatest financial crisis, you know, second largest financial crisis in, US in American history. history. And she, and she never questioned, never, I mean, it was, she's just, uh, she's very tough and in just an amazing person. Mm. Um, and I always tell her that, you know, if, if she and I aren't good, I can't be good. Like that's, it's a, it's a baseline. It's a foundation. Um, I can, we can go do a lot of things, but she and I gotta be good, um, for me to be able to, to,
0: to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've heard this idea. I feel this is true in my own life too, that if everything's great, but my relationship with Anna doesn't feel great, then nothing's great. Yep. And vice versa is also true. If our relationship is great and nothing else is great, uh, we're going to be fine. Everything's great. It's okay. Exactly right. And and it it doesn't get enough exposure, I think. These themes that have grown out of this conversation in the first half of the interview as well, the role of your father, uh, the, the role of... Uh, Now we're, of course, exploring the role of your wife. These family relationships, and they're, I suppose we could say, obvious, other than they're not always emphasized, but their clear role in enabling, let's call it, external or public success. So much of that is enabled in these private relationships that don't get the headlines, but they clearly are the golden thread that or uh, even drivers of what we're seeing externally. Has that been true for you? I'm not trying to
1: put words in your mouth. Very true. And I, I think ultimately, uh, your family, for a large case, especially in the beginning, they get the leftovers of you, right? So they mm-hmm. don't get the full weight and the benefit of you. You're, you're spread out. You're just trying to survive. I'm just trying to make payroll. I just want, when she goes to the grocery store, I want her to be able to pay for the groceries. And so- mm-hmm. They deal with all the 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 bad parts of you, or the you know not sleeping, not all of that. They see these things that the outside world don't see. So, you know that that's why they they just my wife has so much courage and uh, everything that she stood behind.
0: And, and the people closest to us, of course, they see the truest version of us. In a sense, certainly, I think they see the messiest version. They see the exhausted side. They see us when we're not putting on i don't want to say putting on a show because i'm not sure that's quite right but when we're when we're not projecting anything when we're not playing a role just how we are off the stage they're dealing with all of that reality yeah. uh, so of course it's uh, of course that's tougher so tell me about that year of the great recession how many employees did you have before that just hit, I mean, it wasn't a single day, but there was right. kind of a key
1: day. Like and what, a single day, like when that Bear Stearns Lehman when that started falling, we were doing project uh, billing consulting projects, and so we get to twenty five percent complete, we could bill fifty percent complete, and they were all IT based, and about two hundred fifty thousand dollars of outstanding AR went away, and couple weeks, right? And just large companies were calling and saying, Hey, it's, I don't want to do this, but our, we're being told all of our, all of our spend is canceled. Our customers are canceling. It's all gone. And so that was tough, but you know, we had eight teammates at the time and I learned a couple of things. One, you just to back to that kind of feel component. I knew that the people calling me did not want to be calling me and saying mm-hmm. that they were just representing a logo and and a brand. And so it wasn't personal and I didn't take it personal. So I didn't react, Hmm. like move emotion, don't react, understand the moment that you're in. And then the idea of going home and telling Renee or having to call my dad or seeing certain friends that supported me and say, I failed, that was more painful Hmm. than just staying and figuring out some other way. And so fortunately we had, no one on our team was former military. I wasn't, but we had a small little contract that was doing information assurance on a government military contract. Hmm. Um, we would be a sub to a sub to a sub. And I, we knew nothing about that world that we Hmm. just hadn't done a lot of work on. So we started, but you had a contract. Yeah, we had, that was, if we were going to eat, we had to figure it out and we Googled our way and, and, uh, That information assurance contract—that's what the military called cybersecurity before they named it cyber—and that's Mm -hmm. how we got into cyber.
0: So that contract existed prior to the to the the day of the meltdown. Yes. Yeah, but that was the only thing really that existed afterwards. Right. <laughs> yeah,
1: it was real easy to figure out where to focus. It was either <laughs> it was either go home and tell everybody you failed, or I'm i I'm
0: gonna learn some acronyms. Like, you know, was- but one of the reasons that you have that advantage, I mean, that's a tremendous. I mean, that's a tremendously lucky moment. Yes, because you have a contract with an organization that is at least somewhat recession proof. Yeah, uh, you know that they're, they're not. There is, they are still affected to some degree by economic cycles, but nothing like the tech industry in general, nothing like the consulting industry, which was just immediately decimated, uh, you know, pretty much for the next two years, I would say, after, after yeah. uh, the meltdown. So you have this contract. Was it a big contract or did you grow it into a big contract? We grew it into a big contract. I mean, so we a were- a pretty small contract.
1: Very small, but but a small is relative. I mean, I could make payroll for a very small amount of money. Like that organization would pay us and think it was a small amount of money. To me, it was a small fortune, right? I right. mean, so I didn't need much. Now, I i mean, myself, I wasn't on payroll for probably the first two three years of the company, and then after mm-hmm. that, I was on off on off. And so mm-hmm. I would say I've never missed a payroll other than my own, and I've it's never nice. not paid a bill. Uh, yes, so.
0: no, I'm sure you are proud about that, and, and, and rightly right, so.
1: So it was very small, and we just had to Google our way into understanding what they were asking for. Mm-hmm. And when it, it, it got far enough along where we had assembled this team that could go do this work. So it was like four people that could go do this work. Did you keep the eight people you had before?
0: We did, yeah. And, and Really? We just, so you kept the same eight people. Yep. You're going to work together. You're saying, okay, the only way this works is if we figure out this contract and we turn this into a big contract. Exactly. That's our lifeline. And everyone understood that.
1: Yeah. Chris Elliot, who still works for us today, was our second ever employee. He was there at the time. And wow. he and I Google searched our way. We would stay up all night just working through the night trying to figure it out. And What, what does uh, this mean? What are they
0: asking for? What right. is the But but were you learning cybersecurity? Was your primary focus, or is it just the language of the military? It was the language of the military.
1: It was the (laughs) the acronym. Like I didn't know what a VSAT terminal was. I didn't know what the yeah. We didn't know any of it. I didn't know the difference between a secret and top secret clearance. And 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 that was really funny. It just shows you that one, luck is undefeated, and two, people will show you grace along the way. Mm -hmm. And we delivered this team to go do the work and the the subcontractor said, you know, well, I need your cage code. I need your contract vehicle. And he could clearly tell he didn't, there was no zoom video, but he could tell by the blankness of my answer there. He's like, I'm going to assume you don't have any of this. Yeah. We're going to figure out a way to get you paid on this. And then I'll explain all this on the back end." And And that's what happened. So somebody took an interest and, you know, like I said, luck is undefeated. And, got to be thankful the people show you grace this
0: episode is sponsored by shopify selling a little or a lot <coughs> shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage shopify's there to help you with less effort, thanks to Shopify magic, which is your AI powered all-star. In my experience with every business that I have built, including this podcast, there are breakthrough moments and those moments are often the result of finding the right partner. And I think that's a way to think about Shopify because no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com greg, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com greg now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com greg. For people that are listening to our conversation, Who have not worked with the military. I don't think you can really understand how complex the language of the military can be. Frankly, how ridiculous it can be because there's acronyms for absolutely everything. I remember the first time I was working with one arm of the military and we were just doing, I was just doing a keynote for them. It wasn't a complex piece of work. We had the pre keynote call. It was about an hour. My assistant was on the call at the same time. When the call ended, she said, "I didn't understand anything from the beginning of that conversation to the end." So I'm hoping you did. And the truth is, I didn't understand much more than she did. I really was amazed at the level of well, yeah, just the acronym talk. You know, I thought corporations were bad with with jargon, and I think they are. But it was nothing on this. And so that that was a double whammy that you had. It was.
1: And and we were, but we, we had to eat, right? I was cash advancing credit cards. I took out a second mortgage on the house and making others. And so you just had to survive, right? I mean, uh, and we, we figured it out and we started to grow that concept from there and got good at information assurance and they coined it cyber. And we quickly decided by, you know, we, you're right. That 2008 to 2010 was brutally difficult, even with this small totally. vehicle Totally, um, and the economy really wasn't getting back until like 10 or 11. And then we pivoted to start asking ourselves, well, let's go do this for commercial accounts. We understand that procurement. I did not understand we, cause we didn't have contract writing vehicles and all that stuff. So we were essentially getting squeezed, you know, margin compression on the military side and, and then yep. we pivoted. But yeah, we were, we were fortunate enough to have a shot there.
0: When did you get your second contract with the military? I think we,
1: I looked at it, it as when we got our second subcontract. We always worked as a sub to a sub. So our second, the one that really took off for us, we got our first in that 08 that we had sat on for a while and then started to work. We got our second in the end of 2009, beginning of 2010. And that's where a lot of just, Volume came in through that contract because we had gotten really good at the information assurance and satellite engineering work. And, uh, they had a, they were awarded a big contract. And Mm. so way, you know, the way these things work is they all get awarded at the same time. And then it's like a jump ball who can fill it the fastest. Right we were an advantage because we were so desperate. We'd work nights and weekends and right. we'd fill out teams while others were sleeping. And so they had this big contract where I think they needed 50 people and we found 30 of them. And that really made us, uh, that, that put us on a new trajectory.
0: The day you got that second subcontract, that was the day you knew this company is going to make it. We can be successful. Yes, yeah. and And
1: what's interesting is we, I had to later pivot the business at the end of 2012. So if this is 2010 in 2012, I looked at the business again, being self-aware, we were winning, you know, fastest growing company and all this. We were feeling good about ourselves. We're doing, you know, 10, $12 million of revenue in that point, And it was a good sized business, mm-hmm. but I knew it wouldn't last. And I, why, I, why did you know that? because we were a sub to a sub to a sub. And so every time a Marine Corps contract would come back at a more competitive rate, that that shaving of the feet mm. all the way down. And to learn the vernacular of inside the military, I started to volunteer at an organization called AFSIA, hmm. Armed Forces Communication Electronics Association hmm. at MacDill Air Force Base, hmm. and just started to listen. Um, and that you had a mix of, active duty officers and, uh, industry partners. And I could just tell by going to those luncheons and listen that that the spend was ending and mm-hmm. we need to pivot the business mm-hmm. and we need to go a hundred percent commercial. And so I had to go back to Renee and say, Hey, we're booming at this time, but I need to turn off all of that. And we need to go a hundred percent. Cause then we only had Fourteen people, but we needed all fourteen people to be focused. Like I believe that you mm-hmm. needed ever, you couldn't peel off one or two people. You had to do it all or or do none of it. And that was another kind of great moment in the ReliQuest journey. It's really been two companies, and and we had to shut down one and then rebrand the
0: other into all cybersecurity. Okay, help me understand precisely how that worked. Did you really turn off the contract? first, then you just literally don't have a contract. We got to go get a contract. Or did you transition by saying, okay, we're keeping that contract, but we're going to go start the commercial focus. And once we have a contract there, we're going to turn this one off.
1: Yeah. We had some billets that we were still working as part of the existing vehicles that we were on or through those subcontractors. We didn't chase any new ones. And the guy was going to keep that going. And then I turned everybody over to start cold calling commercial accounts.
0: So every person, no matter what their competency was, now was now a salesperson. We redid the scripts and uh, got on the phones and started cold calling. Redid the scripts. You like you like right back to the uh, you right back to the class in college. That's it. I mean, that's it. And helping everybody in the business to know that they're a salesperson as well as whatever other competence they bring to the table. Yeah, if you if you don't quit, you can't lose, right? So um that was, that wasn't smart enough to quit. Yes, but that's that's but you're not doing yourself proper justice with that because what you did in actually saying, no, we have to make this proper strategic trade-off. Not, well, we'll straddle it, which is like my experience working with let's say 500ish organizations over you know the last 10 15 years is that almost everybody almost all of the time when faced with a trade-off wants to do both it, 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 because it's it's like you don't have to really in fact you don't make a decision that's what a straddle strategy is, right? Decision means to cut or to kill. So it's like a straddle strategy isn't making a decision, but therefore you don't feel as responsible for picking the wrong one. And it's really interesting to me that you framed what you did in the way that you did. You literally had that conversation with Renee. You said, no, we are out of that. We've got to completely focus on a different market now going forward.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I had help. I had a a group of people I respected, colonels in this Afsia program telling me, you know, I knew something was ending. I knew that was getting more difficult. And then the people that were telling me I was insane to even be thinking of this were some of the members of our team at that point, family members, friends. They weren't telling me I was crazy because it was a bad idea. I I knew they were telling me they're crazy because they cared for me, right? They didn't Mm -hmm. want you know, they didn't want us to get hurt. And so Mm -hmm. I think sometimes when you're making a decision, you have to remove that people's emotional need to like, want to see you be okay to protect you from the decision you should make. Right. So sometimes those are at odds with each other. And I knew that sitting on a sinking ship, that wasn't good. Sitting in the middle of the road, just means you get hit by both sides of traffic. Right. And so I'm going to, I'm going to pick a road. And I remember telling Renee really early on, look, this thing is either going to be really massive or you're going to see the nuclear fallout cloud from space
0: of the failure. <laughs> like it, it's one or the other. And, and, and that's it's either over, a- the business is over yeah. or it's just launching.
1: That's it. and, and But that's, like that's, take it, I've always been a student of history and I love the industrial revolution and what I've always loved reading about those figures in that time was there were no rules at the time. They had to make it up as they went. And they took these massive gambles, like not gamble, but their gut, they knew it was right. Just nobody had done it before. And they were willing to see the gamble through, right? They just didn't stop. I mean, Carnegie was bankrupt almost how many times, right? And then figured out you could build a bridge with steel. I mean, it's the, the, the guts hmm. that they took uh, and they just didn't quit. So Rockefeller could have quit when the light bulb was invented and they wasn't going to need, you know, kerosene anymore. So it's just, it's to me, there's so much to be learned by people that have come before you.
0: Yes. And this is the second time I want to say like, yes, yes to this idea of I just didn't quit. Like I, I, that's obviously part of your story and it's certainly part of your mantra because you keep saying it, but I don't know that it's doing justice to the actual thought process that you really go on. So of course you are having this sense of like, no, I have to succeed, but it's combined with this, I would say fairly developed awareness that in order to succeed, we have to seriously change, not, not around the peripheral things, not 5%, not 10% here, not let's prepare for the future by doing a bit over here, but a seriously clear understanding and that I think is the difference I think it explains something of your own success I think it explains something of Carnegie and these these industrialists when you said uh, these massive risks what I actually think is happening inside of you and inside of them is a clear understanding of what's going on what where the trends are going and therefore they work with real clarity not just gumption. Not just, I will not quit. If you just have that without the clarity, you're dead. The business is over. There's no kind of ego to even talk about. There's no Relyar Quest to be able to have a conversation about here. You'd just be still with the military. I will not quit dying out. So it's obviously a combination of clarity plus the willingness to change. I
1: think you're you're dead on. I think as we've grown and cybersecurity has changed so much from 2010 to now. Data's moved (laughs) everywhere, right? I mean, it's in (laughs) clouds and devices. and, And I think about even pushing the business to continually innovate and build intellectual property that allows us to detect incidents and respond to them in an automatic way, regardless of where the data sits. That was driving the business to where you knew you needed to be. And when I look at, some companies that haven't done that and have just kind of stayed static, they're still in business. They're probably still doing well, but they're not going after this addressable market. They're not trying to solve a problem. I think for us, Mm -hmm. I was always trying to solve a problem. I'd always ask myself, like, what problem am I solving for? Who's the customer? Like who, Mm -hmm. what, what problem are they solving for? And Mm -hmm. then I would mix that with, I have a need and a desire to be willing to do the things that other people aren't willing to do. Like Mm -hmm. I know that if I'm willing to do that, if I'm willing to put the customer's problem in front of my own need to do anything else, there is an outcome that you can get to there. I think there's a way through. Now you have to hire the right people and inspire people to think that way and, and there's so many things that have to go your way and you have to get lucky, right? Market timing and all of those things. But if you're not willing to solve the tough problem and not willing to listen, I think you ultimately get beat.
0: Well, and you're talking about listening in a very particular kind of way. It's not just making somebody feel good because you're listening, which is nothing wrong with that. You're talking about listening in a, in a richer sense than that, in a, in a complex way, way because it's of course listening to internal customers and it's listening to the market and it's listening to signals on the periphery it's it's a it's a it's a rich term for you if i'm understanding the way that you're using it yeah for sure it's it's just being intentional and and looking past
1: i've learned over time that what somebody's telling you they need and what they need are generally two different things mm. and so try to Solve the problem that's being talked about, not the thing that they want, right? And, and that's a that's something that's it's often talked about, but hard to do.
0: Yeah, you, you're talking there about they say, "Oh, I've got th- this problem. Can you come and do something about it?" And level one would be resp- level one responsiveness would be, "Yes, we can do that for you." But what you're really saying maybe you don't use these words but is no but we will solve your problem for you exactly right if i can
1: get you to that endpoint in a better way would you be open to listening that and or not even a better way in a different way mm-hmm. would you be open to think differently about how we get to that endpoint and that it's so important I think, in entrepreneurship to not chase the shiny car because when you have to make payroll and somebody comes to you and says, if you do these three things, I'll give you this amount of money. Man, it takes a lot of discipline and a lot of focus to not just say, I'll take it. And don't get me wrong, we've done that several times to make payroll. But if you want to build a real business, you've you got to- can't have that be strategy. You can. I mean, you have to at some point, add value beyond what the person was originally thinking. And
0: that's what yeah. allows
1: you to grow a big business.
0: And the creation of that additional value comes from not just listening to the words they're saying, not even just understanding the meaning behind the words they're saying, but to understand their problem better than they understand their problem. Exactly right. And, and being willing to have so many of
1: those conversations. I mean, we're a, you know, in valuation, multi billions of dollars, 1200 teammates worldwide, but I will still do a hundred and a hundred in campaign. Well, I will do, I'll talk to a hundred customers for one hour in a hundred days. And I'll just, hmm. you know, what are they thinking? What problems are out there? What are they solving for? And that drives in me, gives me ideas around other companies we could acquire, other things we could go build, share it with my teams we join those calls together. So you just have to stay curious when I know that I don't know the problem. I know that other people are in the fight and I just need to listen to what they're telling me and be willing to provide a solution for it. Or be willing to say that's not what we do, but we have to focus on the problem and focus on who that customer is. And that's what we've gotten. You know those are, that's one of those things that are uh, simple things are seldom easy. That's really simple to understand brutally difficult to stay focused and brutally difficult to, to do and and execute on, on a consistent basis.
0: What other questions do you ask people in that one hour conversation?
1: Yeah. I think to me, it starts with, you know, what, what problem are you solving for? And, and they'll give me generally the solution they want to go with. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I want to understand well, what teams in their organization? We work with a global 2000. So it's never just the security team that's working Mm -hmm. up. It's the network team, help desk. It could be all parts. Well, Well, your question is like, who's involved? Like what other departments are impacted by this, right? Cause I want to know like, what's the scope? Are Mm -hmm. they thinking too narrow? Or is there a way that we could partner with another technology in the program, in the, in the, uh, in the, 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 the company, my favorite question is the kind of the last one, and I have a five question framework. But my- no, my, I want to hear
0: those five questions. Yeah. So give so us the five and then the, end the, with the last
1: one. So, uh, so I start with what problem are we solving for. The second thing, and, and we use this internally. You don't if you have an idea, you got to bring these five. You, you, this framework, you have to have three of the five questions filled out, and we'll work hmm. together, the team, to get all five. But hmm. what problem are you solving for? Number two who's involved like what teams are impacted you know who's 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 involved what different options did you look at right so what are the what are the different options that you weighed number 4 what recommendation are you making
0: mm-hmm.
1: and number 5 in my favorite what are the unintended consequences of going with that recommendation so i want you to think about when or if this breaks why doesn't mean we still don't go with it. Mm -hmm. But sometimes people get that kind of confirmation bias if they start (laughs) with the thing they want to do. Mm -hmm. Like, so you start with the thing that you're recommending and then you back up to the problem you're solving, you back up to, you can generally suss that out by asking what are the unintended consequences of going in this direction?
0: Why does that suss it it out, that question?
1: It forces them to be contrarian to their idea and the Mm -hmm. thing that they want to do. It forces them... Think about if you were to break it, how would you break it? And and I use that both externally with customers to understand the problems they're working on. These are large, complex organizations, and I'll never know as much about their business as they do. So I have right. to be curious. And internally, it keeps us from chasing shiny cars. It keeps us from spending hours and hours having an idea and getting excited about the idea and not really. Weighing it through, right, and that that second question of who's involved that generally puts things puts the brakes on things pretty quickly because other teams come in. Well, well, you're not thinking about this, or you're not thinking about this, and so you, mm-hmm. it, it allows for collaboration. Mm-hmm. We don't get siloed. Mm-hmm.
0: So, so the internal when you're using that framework internally by having the which teams are involved in this that helps to stop the person advocating for a solution that only addresses a portion of the real problem.
1: Exactly. Because in concept, we are not a department or a group. We're a company. We're ReliQuest, And so we have to think about everybody, right? Is it, and you know, I'm big on like systems. So on any major decision, any small decision, I weigh a final, like, so we decide a direction we're going to go. I bounce it off of three questions is it good for our teammates? Is it good for a live Is it good for the shareholder? Is it good for the customer? And if we can't say yes to all three, we never do it. So mm-hmm. you, you have to do this because things move quickly and people get excited around ideas and ideas are great, but creativity can also kill performance, right? Can mm-hmm. kill outcomes and the need to be creative can slow things down. So who are we in business? Who are we solving the problems for? Like who's the hero in our story? And is it good for the people that it needs to be good for? And we have to, as leaders, you know, be maniacally focused on those outcomes.
0: What do you mean by the term systems? When you said I'm a big believer in systems or my student of systems, maybe is what you said. What do you mean by that? I think quick checks,
1: right? Like I, my least favorite four letter word is wait. And so Mm. I have to create some guardrails of like, what questions can, what things can we be questioning to allow us to continue to move things forward, but also be checking to be professionally skeptical that we may be wrong, right? And I think that we can't be so optimistic. I'm an optimistic person, but I challenge things all the time. Like I, you know, I I think that companies seldom lose from outside forces. I think companies win and lose from the inside out. And I want to create these checks and balances along the way to make sure we're not believing our own story and our own Mm -hmm. bio. If we challenge ourselves enough inside the building, by the time it gets outside, it's going to do some real good.
0: There's so many places I still want to go. One thing I must say is, because we talked about a Clayton Christensen Insight in our first interview, this part two, in his most famous book is Innovator's Dilemma, in which he identifies the problem. And then he wrote a second book later, The Innovator's Solution. So The Innovator's Dilemma, very simply stated, is that when innovation happens in a market, the dominant players in that market are disincentivized to change and adapt and Utilize the new market, the new innovation. Okay. The only solution, the only solution that Clayton Christensen believes exists for that is that a company needs to take a portion of their employee base and make them into a separate company because the incentives are so misaligned if you try to do it within the company. Everyone just still wants to do the safe thing, the thing that already pays. the So that the gravity pull back towards that is so immense that people can't overcome the innovator's dilemma, even when they know it intellectually. And so the reason I'm saying all of that is that both that story right back in the day when you said, okay, we're not doing this anymore, we have to do this future thing, or the hundred and a hundred where you're gathering this new insight constantly and challenging that internal story you know the story with reality right because that's the that's the that's the gap I think you're talking about that's so killer uh, to to organizations they get out of touch and irrelevant with their customers and i just i guess I wanted to say I think that you're an example of someone who is actually implementing the spirit of the innovator solution uh, in the in the way you're describing it it makes complete sense and I think for me
1: I have to be disciplined enough on a regular basis myself, just as an individual that, you know, I'm founder and CEO, and I I can't forget the founder Mm -hmm. entrepreneur piece. And I think if you stay entrepreneurial enough, you can challenge even yourself and challenge your own standards. But if you get caught up being the Mm -hmm. CEO, I think you, you have a tendency to miss an innovation cycle or two. And that's, that's the tug of war. And the bigger we get, the more of an entrepreneur and founder I stay because uh, there's enough people Managing that it. are in that kind of... Yeah, exactly. So I need to be contrarian almost. I need to be like, how would I break this? Like if I wanted to beat me, how would I beat me? Um, and that's kind of the mental tug of war that I have that's going on on a regular basis.
0: I think this is the spirit of the of the Andy Grove idea of only the paranoid survive yeah. And he's not books. really yeah. talking about yeah. paranoia in the in a psychological, in a strictly psychological sense, but that idea of of no, we're already wrong, we're already wrong right <laughs> now. All it matters yep. is working out how wrong we are and how fast can we figure out how wrong we are by constantly listening and getting back in touch with the people that we're trying to serve and, and, and so on in the ways that you described. Uh, do you have a final word for us? I just appreciate you uh, you, you taking the time.
1: And uh, this has been amazing for me at the way you unpack mm. things and, and, you. and connect things that I just really haven't connected. Uh, so it's funny coming in and I'm telling my story, but you're translating it in a way that I've never really understood it before. So thank you. It's a, it's a, it's been amazing. And I would just encourage everybody out there to, you know, keep chasing their own possible. It's uh it's all possible, but if you don't chase after it, uh, it never becomes possible.
0: That's a beautiful uh, way to, to, to end here, Brian, both for you and also for the listeners. What I want to say is I think that I think that there is more to your thinking processes, the complexity of it, you know, the book side of it, if we had to say it in those terms, than is obvious to you. I think there's an unconscious competence to that. And that's an opportunity too, because if you can sort of have a a higher awareness of that yourself, you'll be able to inculcate that more consciously into the culture of the whole organization. We want you to be a reading organization. That that sort of idea. And for everybody listening, I have three questions that you're familiar with. What is one thing that stood out in today's conversation? What is one thing that you can do immediately? You know, I mean within the next five minutes, the next 10 minutes, to just begin the journey of whatever that insight was. And the final thing is, who can you share this with? How can you continue the conversation now that this conversation has come to a close? Thank you, really, for listening.
2: This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network.